You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. My history can beat up your politics. The greatest moment of Gerald Ford's presidency came in the first few minutes of it. After being sworn in by Chief Justice Warren Burger on August 9, 1974, Ford said, Our long national nightmare is over. Like a musician hitting just the right tonic, Ford's speech and the image of President Nixon flying away in a helicopter and now a new man as president was exactly what the country needed at that time. It's hard to imagine the shock of a nation upon learning that their president lied to them. Now it seems almost commonplace. We expect politicians to lie, even the president. Then it was certainly a shock. And when this proud former football player, former congressman, an affable man whose only ambition was to have been Speaker of the House, when he took the podium and assumed the powers of the imperial presidency. It was a unique moment of healing. According to Robert Hartman, the speechwriter who wrote those words about the long national nightmare being over. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. His words were a lot stronger than the former Nixon administration people, who were still in the White House, wanted Ford to go. And the words were received well by congressmen, by reporters, by members of the public. If that was, and it certainly was, the best moment of the two-and-a-half-year Ford presidency. And the worst moment had to be not even a month later, on September 8th, 1974, when Ford gave Richard Nixon, the now former president, a full pardon for any crimes he had or may have committed. Ford, the person who was healing the nation, the popular man, was now, it seemed, part of the conspiracy. A conspiracy with the president who had preceded him. For many, it seemed that Ford had become a convenient person, that there was some kind of deal. 
there was still potential for prosecution of Richard Nixon. He could have faced several charges possibly related to Watergate. And there was the suspicion that as he had lied about hid evidence about one thing, there could be many more crimes. If Ford's long national nightmare speech had struck the perfect note, this action certainly touched a sour one. Immediately, there were charges of corruption, of a deal where Nixon gave Ford the presidency in exchange for a pardon. Ford, for his part, said that he executed the pardon because the nation needed to move on, that he even could not govern as president, that we were a nation that was still involved with the Cold War and the Soviets were, and there was plenty to deal with. The economy uh, needed help, and that the nation couldn't move on without getting Watergate behind it. He was so adamant that Ford agreed to appear before Congress. It was the first time a president had ever done so in official capacity, although Lincoln had made had some meetings with congressional committees. And after Ford's explanation, most people at the time and now agreed there was no deal. Nixon had resigned, as that was in his interest. Ford had executed a pardon because he thought it was in the nation's best interest in his estimation. Was Ford's decision to pardon Nixon right? We'll examine that, but first let's look at Gerald Ford and look at what impact his presidency had on today's politics. The bumbling fool that's characterized by Chevy Chase in Saturday Night Live, falling down off the airplane and etc., was in fact a football hero, a very well-built man, and in the early 1960s he was part of a Young Turks movement in the Republican Party. One of the reasons that he was selected by Lyndon Johnson to be on the Warren Commission, which, by the way, now makes him the last member of the Warren Commission to die, was that he was an up-and-coming young Republican. There were a lot of comparisons to John Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson thought it would make the commission more credible to have someone like that on it. He then became a minority leader of the House Republicans and served in that capacity several years with the hope, of course, of the Republicans hopefully winning control of the House and where he would possibly become Speaker. But things didn't quite work out that way. Spear Agnew resigned, and Nixon did not want Gerald Ford to replace him. Nixon wanted John Connolly, the governor of Texas, who had been a Democrat. Remember, John Connolly was known for being in the car with JFK when he was shot. He had been the governor of Texas, he was a Democrat, switched parties, and became Nixon's Treasury Secretary. Leaders of the Democratic House and Senate would not allow Nixon to pick his vice president in any case, and the last person he wanted was a man that they felt had switched parties and betrayed him, John Connolly. They said that among the Republicans... Gerald Ford, who they had a good working relationship with in the House, was the only Republican who could get a House vote. Speaker Carl Albert made it very clear to Nixon that they wanted Ford. Nixon had no choice. Now, while much has been made and probably will be made in the first in the coming days of Gerald Ford being the first unelected president, It is true that he was not elected, but he was selected by a vote of the people's representatives and was the strong choice of the opposition party. In that way, he was probably a more bipartisan, a more popular choice than most vice presidents who attain the office of the presidency through the president's death, who 
They're not well known. Mostly they're on the bottom of the ticket and voters pay more attention to the top of the ticket. So I think too much is made sometimes of Ford being the first unelected president. Ford had a short time as vice president and uh, kept quiet for the most part about the Watergate scandal that was brewing at the time, uh, being able to legitimately claim that he was not part of the executive government when events occurred. And of course, when Nixon resigned, Ford became president. His presidency was not incredible. I mean, he did have some achievements. Uh, after a brief recession, lasting approximately from 74 to 75, he, the country did pull out, and 76 was the bicentennial year and a pretty good year for the economy. Ford's foreign policy, including the Helsinki Accords, in which the Soviet Union, for the first time, agreed to a set of human rights principles in the Warsaw Pact Eastern European nations, probably pointed uh, the U.S. in a little bit different direction than it had been. I think you will see in the coming days and certainly the coming years more attention paid to Gerald Ford's foreign policy, and particularly the Helsinki Accords, which uh, may have uh, given dissenters in the Soviet Union, but certainly in Eastern Europe, a little bit of a leg up and an international agreement they could point to for legitimacy, which may have helped in the undermining of the Soviet Union and certainly in the undermining of the Warsaw Pact. Of course, in that sense, Ford benefited from Nixon's steps in terms of reaching out to China and therefore presenting the Soviet Union with the possibility of two foes, the United States and China, and improving the United States' leverage with the Soviet Union, which no doubt Ford and presidents after him benefited from. He was the first president to call for a re-examination of the nation's relationship with Israel, though there was no policy change. He merely called for a re-examination. The amount of money going to support Israel is exactly the same, and there was no change in our uh, position vis-a-vis supporting Israel over the Arab nations or being the guarantor of Israel's survival. But he's the first president to take a look at that. It may be some foundation for the changing role of the presidency over the years in relationship to Israel from one of absolute support to one of encouraging Israel and the Arab nations, the Palestinians, to come to the table and being sort of a umpire or a referee. Probably his greatest and most underrated achievement for Ford as a president and a politician was the fact that after the years of scandal, one of the worst scandals in the 20th century, where a president had resigned office, he had one of the closest presidential races ever, keeping Carter within a few states of defeat winning big states, California, New Jersey, six election. In fact, the entire election really represented Carter, who had started the race uh, after being nominated with a 20-point lead over Ford, spending most of the election trying not to lose, holding on from the barrage of the president who kept Carter on the defensive and challenged him to several debates. In the end, though, Ford did lose... And the margin is no doubt was affected by his pardon of Nixon. Much of the credit could go to the fact that Carter was a Southerner 
and therefore as a native son carried many southern states. But Ford did surprisingly well in the election and really set the Republican Party, which could have been in real trouble for many presidential cycles after the Watergate election, really set them up for a win in four years when then-Governor Ronald Reagan would run for the presidency. So let's return to what is really the debated question of the Ford presidency. Should Ford have pardoned Nixon? Let's look at what Ford's reasoning was. His reasoning was that the nation just couldn't continue with its business unless the Nixon matter was dealt with once and for all. And so his pardon was a way to clear the air and to end the story. In this, I disagree. It was only a month after Nixon's resignation that Ford pardoned him. So certainly there was still a lot of buzz about it. After investigations and a possible lengthy trial of Nixon, if it led to that, Americans would have probably started to tire of the story and move on to other things in a natural process. It's not clear at all that the pardon ended the story, but in fact may have created more buzz and more distraction from his presidency. It's really hard to understand how the Nixon matter really kept Ford, who had all the powers of the presidency and who was extremely popular, both with the nation and Congress, from performing his role as president, from performing the, from, from operating the office. In fact, the pardon probably reduced some of the power that Ford had by reducing his very popularity with the nation and with Congress and making it a little more difficult for him to get things done. But was that his real reasoning? Let me examine a bit of a darker scenario. Nixon's mental state, which was always a little bit questionable, was according to close friends and according to Bob Woodward's book, The Final Days, was deteriorating. Ford, no doubt, would have been aware of this one way or another. This information may have been provided to him by Al Haig, who was then Nixon's chief of staff while Ford was vice president. Nixon had avoided an impeachment with his resignation, and which is def- with his defiant speech and the helicopter ride and the wave. But now there would be a trial, perhaps. And there was concern, concern I believe justified, that Nixon would have been in extreme mental duress over such a trial and may have even taken his own life. In my opinion, this was a consideration in Ford's decision, though he never admitted this. I can actually have more sympathy with this reasoning than just the sort of sense that, oh, it was too much of a news story and it was interrupt what we're trying to do. The tragedy of the office, of the presidency, to the country that would have happened, the personal tragedies, well, that would have happened, would have been a tragedy for the entire nation and reduced the credibility of the office of the President of the United States. Ford realized, I believe, that Nixon's resignation was punishment enough, and it may have been. The reason the Founding Fathers gave the pardon power was for circumstances like that, unique circumstances, not thought of by the framers of the Constitution, and that one man could deliberate on, and perhaps not a body of men like a Congress. The most amazing thing about Gerald Ford and his decision to pardon Nixon was that he took the action at all. Here was a popular president, 
with very little to lose. With friends on the Democratic side of the aisle, who had, in a sense, appointed him, made it clear to Nixon this is who they wanted, they picked him. He was their guy. He was popular with the American people and with the press. In an instant, he traded in the popularity for what he felt was the right decision. The Constitution intended the president, in a sense, to be above the day-to-day political fray. One person, an executive, who could make decisions within boundaries that were the best for the country. In 1974, Ford executed their vision. And by taking what was an unpopular action, but an action nonetheless that he felt was right, he restored the presidency that the founding fathers had envisioned even after his predecessor had done everything possible to destroy that office. It is not surprising that in his final comments, Gerald Ford said he disagreed with Bush's policy in getting involved in the Iraq War. It was Gerald Ford who, paraphrasing him, said at the fall of Saigon, America cannot be the world policeman, and that failure in Vietnam does not mean a failure for America. Gerald Ford may have, ironically, saved the imperial presidency by acting not so imperial. And while his presidency stands as a stark reminder of the power of the office when the power is used correctly, and of a foreign policy that was conservative and started to focus on human rights, really stands in sharp contrast to where his successors took the presidency. There have been other points in history where the power of the president has been severely reduced. After Andrew Jackson's presidency, for instance, and after the Lincoln presidency, after the Civil War, the presidency entered points where the power of the office was far below that of Congress. After Watergate, it's conceivable that given the anger over the presidential abuse of power, that this could have happened again. It's my belief that because of Ford's actions, and because of his skills as a politician, and because of the way he approached the office in a humble, conservative manner, reaching out to the other aisle, the imperial presidency was saved. Ironically, he may not have been happy with how all his successors used the office that he had restored. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.